0: The director of the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center is going to introduce our speaker, but I want to say just a word about this remarkable book. This is called An Incomplete History uh, because it's not a single narrative that begins on the first page and goes on to the end. Uh, This is a book that is made up of archival material uh, and so you can't help but see, be fascinated by the informal exchanges of what we're up to, what are we doing for the next issue, the last issue was a, a disaster, we'll never invite him again to write a review and that sort of thing. This is what you'll find in the uh, uh, the informal history. So I thought uh, as someone who works a lot in the archives that this was uh, a brilliant idea. It's just a new way of looking uh, at institutional history and I've never s- quite seen the, uh, uh, anything com- comparable. Steve. Thank you, Roger. Um, so it is a pleasure to introduce Sam Kitchen-Smith, who will be speaking about the London Review Archive. Um, while this is a lovely book that Sam has worked on to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the, the London Review of, of Books, uh, publication. I will say the originals are even better, <laughs> and they're in a room just downstairs. So uh, we're we're proud to hold that archive and uh, delighted to have Sam here talking about the history of the LRB. Uh, Sam came uh, two years ago, I guess, uh, to begin work on this project to mark the 40th anniversary, and I look forward to hearing him speak today. And welcome, Sam, back to the Ransom Center.
1: Shall we just get his lecture? Hello, everyone. Um, Thanks, Steve, and thanks, Roger, for inviting me. Um, It's a great honor to contribute to a series that um, both predates me and the magazine I work for. Um, I've called uh, my lecture today, London Review of Books, A History in Pieces, Um, whether or not it becomes clear why over the course of the next 45 minutes. You'll have to wait and see. Before I begin, a couple of brief background notes. I'm well aware that my job title at the London Review of Books, Head of Special Projects, sounds a bit ridiculous, like a ceremonial position invented for an annoying job's worth to keep them out of the way of the more important work being done elsewhere. But actually, that's precisely the point. It's the unusual freedom I've enjoyed for the four years I've worked at the LRB to pursue ideas and leads in parallel to the editorial work that produces the fortnightly paper perpendicular and parallel, until it isn't. That meant I was able to spend a couple of weeks here in Austin at the Harry Ransom Centre, digging around in the hundreds of boxes of correspondence, typescripts and galleys that we've been sending here since the mid-1990s. And then a couple of months compiling an enthusiastically incomplete history of the magazine based on what I found for our 40th anniversary, a copy of which I was Pleased to see here today, and a couple more copies of which I've brought with me today to give to those of you who asked the best questions. (laughs) All of which is to say that at the London Review of Books, I'm a newcomer with a weird brief. I've worked there for less than 10% of the time that Mary Kay Wilmers, its co-founder and still its editor, has sat in the centre of the office that one contributor, Michael Neve, described as the scariest room in London. And so I've confined myself in the lecture that follows to areas in which I can claim a degree of expertise. The paper's history, as expressed by an archive that has been so untouched and under-investigated that I might actually be the world's leading expert on it, which is an exciting thought. And our present and future, especially the digital side of things, which I'm helping to shape. For a detailed account of the LRB's writers and writing over the years, its editorial processes, intellectual contribution, and, uh, well, what it all means. I refer you to my colleagues' future, currently hypothetical, but let's face it, inevitable, memoirs. Secondly, I spent part of last week at a conference claiming to explore the intersection of culture, technology, and entrepreneurship. It was actually very good. And in recent years, I've attended many more keynotes at these sort of events than papers at academic conferences. The form these presentations tend to take is a first-person journey described by a charismatic self-identified visionary. I had a dream but kept finding myself blocked by a problem, so I came up with a solution which achieved immediate success, so here's my plan for its terrifying global expansion. Now, I find this genre as annoying as the next skeptical non-Californian person, but it's teleologically convincing in the moment to an extent that makes it quite difficult to shake off. And I fear the first-person account that follows might slightly reflect that, in which case, apologies in advance. Apologies also for the quality of some of the slides, which are decidedly makeshift for reasons I won't bore you with. On we go. As the decades pass, the origin myth of an increasingly legendary publication or cultural institution becomes over-rehearsed to the point of meaninglessness. A neat paragraph of sentences is refined and copied and pasted onto the bottom of press releases, the inside pages of books and the about pages of websites, or seeded through newspaper interviews and magazine profiles. Like professional production standards, or indeed a crest, it serves as a signifier or precy of prestige, an elegant crystallization of the cachet that accumulates over time, discreetly pocketed, so that the institution's community can focus instead on the very much more engaging present and future of, in the case of the London Review of Books, the magazine, or the paper, as you might have already noticed, we prefer to call it, and the things that orbit it, the next big investigative piece or takedown, a new writer with an original voice, a high-profile public event. Here's what you'll find on the About page of the brand-new LRB website, rendered in our distinctive font on a classly off-white background. Fingers crossed. Yes. The London Review of Books was founded in 1979 during a year-long management lockout at the Times. That is to say, a dispute between management and unions over manning levels and new technology meant none of the five publications in the Times group were published for almost a year. In June that year, Frank Commode wrote a piece in The Observer suggesting that a new magazine fill the space left by the temporary absence of the Times Literary Supplement. The first issue of the LRB, edited by Carl Miller, appeared four years later. It included pieces by Miller and Commode, as well as John Bailey on William Golding and William Empson on A Midsummer Night's Dream, and poems by Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney. Edited by Mary Kay Wilmers since 1992, the LRB now has the largest circulation of any magazine of its kind in Europe, etc. But then a major anniversary comes along, and the past suddenly becomes the most important focus of an organization's present and immediate future. Or rather, that's what needs to happen. Reaching a recognized milestone can be very valuable in terms of both cultural and actual capital if an institution is able to get sufficiently ahead of the narrative so that it can successfully leverage the accumulated esteem and affection, the still aroundness into a PR and marketing and, in the case of a magazine, editorial Philip that can fire it some way into the next decade until inevitably things start to slow down after four or six years and the existential questions kick in. What are we for? Why do we still exist? Are we still the right people and the right platform for doing the thing we set out to do originally? This is as true for a magazine about to turn 40, Hardly a venerable age, but still pretty long in the tooth, bearing in mind the elephant's graveyard of short-lived literary magazines, as it is for, say, an organisation seeking to re-secure an increasingly unfashionable cultural figure's place in posterity, treading water as another decade or quarter century trickles away before the long-awaited big birthday arrives, bearing the gifts of grants and newspaper coverage. And to get ahead of the narrative, to make the past sufficiently engagingly present, the precy in your pocket is no longer enough. Nor is worn-out reminiscence. Merry recollection of the adventures of your glory days only serves to emphasise to your readers and your rivals that those days are far behind you. Still, it's what a lot of cultural organisations end up falling back on, mostly because for them, their best days really are behind them, but also because nothing says you've had a good run, but you don't have any right to be around forever, and perhaps it's time for a young pretender to be given a proper chance to overtake like really actively blowing an anniversary, safer to passively resort to the tried and tested. The LRB's plan for our 40th wasn't exactly high risk. A book, a program of events, some merchandise, including a facsimile of that first ever issue, I've brought some of those too, and a new website, The anniversary was actually a sort of deus ex machina for the new website, which meant that we could claim that launching it a good three years after the project began, thanks to a series of technical and managerial mishaps, was actually what we had intended all along. Our lack of originality meant the risk that we would end up sinking into the comforting quicksands of the usual bullet points, Frank Commode, Carl Miller, our origins as an insert in in the New York Review of Books, our emergence from that marsupial pouch, and the handover of the editorial baton in 1992, colored in with dashes of self-indulgent reminiscence, was pretty real. Perhaps the book could be another anthology of famous, that is to say, unusually influential, or prophetic, or controversial, or starry pieces, from Oliver Sacks' The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, 1983, which Sacks called the starter for his actually famous book of the same name, to Hilary Mantel on Kate Middleton and royal bodies, which provoked a response from the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron simpler times, with an introduction tracing the same old dots all the way back to 1979. More background. The lockout, and to some extent, Commode's call to arms, resulted in the founding of three other new British literary magazines in 1979. Craig Rain's Quarto, Oberon War's Literary Review, and Bill Buford's Granter. Although that third example was actually technically the relaunch of a Cambridge University student periodical founded 90 years before. I'll return to the subject of Granter and its own Ruby anniversary celebrations, which played out somewhat in parallel to ours, later. They centered on a special issue full of famous stories and reportage from the last 40 years, which is the closest any of the four 1979 mag- magazines came to, as I see it, revealing their hand in that way. Another publication couldn't couldn't help itself, however. Curiously, in the year of its 106th birthday, statesmanship, the best of the new statesman 1913 to 2019, Mm -hmm. conspicuously felt the need in its accompanying press release to insist that the magazine's best days weren't behind it in case you were worried. According to the European Press Prize, Jason Cowley has succeeded in revitalizing the new statesman and reestablishing its position as an influential political cultural weekly. He has given it an edge and a relevance to color and affairs it hasn't had for years. So there you go. The same temptations beckoned us towards a whole week of in-conversation events full of nostalgic recollection of the very amusing things Carl said in the 1980s and the writers we fell out with in the 90s and the fallout from our response to 9-11, etc. The website presented more possibilities for pulling ourselves out of the mire, but also a whole new avenue of risk. Constructed around the complete publishing history of the paper, almost 17,500 pieces, the danger was that information overload might have the same deadening effect as the paragraph copied from the old about page onto the new that viable and resonant opportunities to bring the paper's past dynamically into its present might end up encased in a perfectly uniformly digitized shell of incomprehensibly massive completeness with all the charismatic edges and handholds filed off. The solutions suggested by other magazines and cultural institutions next generation websites weren't especially promising either high effort and expensive curatorial projects utilizing the latest developments in linked data and digital storytelling, apparently based on underwhelming traffic reports, without asking themselves or their users the question, is this what our community wants, something they will actually use, or an expanded batch of bullet points reincarnated in the form of grown yet another digital timeline. That's for the Paris Review website, and it's actually really good, so it's harsh to bring it up as an example of a cliched form. This was the gloomy backdrop against which I planned my first trip to Austin, hopeful that I might find something to help us sidestep this great birthday bind. The fact that the Ransom Centre had acquired and was continuing to acquire the magazine's archives suggested it might have a use besides or beyond what we had traditionally understood to be its main USP, namely that our increasingly retro habit of editing pieces on page after page, iteration after iteration of printed proofs passed from editor to editor to typesetter, means the bundles of paper that still result from the making of every issue of the LRB constitute a unique record of the development of the contemporary literary essay in English and the influence of Carl, Mary Kay, and their colleagues creatively destructive, or should that be the other way round, marks on that story. It was hard to imagine how this obsessive witchcraft, or witcraft, to borrow the title of LRB contributors, Jonathan Ray's latest book, might be the engine of reinvigorated anniversary celebrations, but the results of the very few previous forays into boxes of correspondence by HRC staff and passing LRB employees, which had fished out lively letters by the likes of Graham Greene, Edward Said, and particularly Laura Riding, were suggestive that there might be some more things of some interest to be discovered. The London Review of Books collection at the Harry Ransom Centre is comprised of five reasonably well-organised but uncatalogued accretions spanning the years from 1979 to 2006, and at least five more that bring us right up to the present in an almighty jumble of barely organised and increasingly randomly disordered boxes and folders whose swelling size reflects both the LRB's growth and the extent to which digital communication and publishing has ruined, or at least very much complicated, archivists' lives. The advent of email has actually resulted in unusual growth in our physical archive, but also potentially some added value because of another quirk of editorial process. All the the LRB's editors share a single email account, edit at lrb.co.uk. Every non-spam email sent to this address is printed out twice a day and left on Mary Kay's desk. She then goes through them one by one, swiftly scrawling in pencil a response, or at least an outline, before leaving a little pile on each of the editors' desks for them to send as Mary Kay or themselves. So even in the age of outlook, a paper record of most of the correspondence received and sent by the editors of the LRB endures, like the carbon copies of yore, with Mary Kay's idiosyncratic handwriting and sentences, and I suppose Mary Kay herself, bridging the generational shifts from longhand to print to digital. A fitting illustration... uh, of this appears in our book. On the spread about word splits, I do wish you'd do something about your hyphenation program, though. It's disconcerting, a subscriber complains in an email, misunderstanding that we still edit every word split by hand, but we do so based on etymology. The second half of Mary Kay's note in pencil reads, as for our hyphenation policy, it's crazy, I agree, and very time consuming. Each accretion is itself comprised of between 100 and 150 boxes, around half of which contain folders of correspondence organized alphabetically by year, or rather, by volume of the LRB. The other 50 to 75 boxes contain the production files, typescripts, proofs, and galleys of the 24 issues published in each of the year's volumes the accretion spans. Each accretion also contains some boxes that fall between those two stores, unused uh, submissions, by which I mostly mean millions of poems, job applications, event and book publishing paperwork, and so on. In two weeks, I and a researcher were only able to go through a tiny fraction of the 1,500-odd boxes, each of which contains up to 10 manila folders, in the collections. So, in a manner not at all dissimilar to the curation of a large digital archive, promising entry points had to be devised and pursued, and if they didn't swiftly bear fruit, dismissed. I brought with me a list of first places to look at the correspondence and production files behind and around intellectually important and or especially notorious and or historically resonant pieces and issues and moments from the LRB's history that I was aware of and which others suggested, such as launch and the lead-up to it, the break with the New York Review of Books, the Falklands War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, Carl Miller's departure in 1992, the death of Princess Diana, I frowned, but my colleagues insisted, and Granter marked this in their special issue too. 9-11, the opening of the London Review Bookshop in 2003, the global financial crisis, Brexit, don't ask me any questions about that, and so on. Also debuts by the likes of Mary Beard, Alan Bennett, Angela Carter, Jenny Diskey, William Empson, Salman Rushdie, and Susan Sontag. The same Isaiah Berlin wrote for the LRB, and Tony Blair, and Martha Gellhorn, and the time Harold Pinter didn't. Wynne Godley on the Maastricht Treaty, Edward Said on the Oslo Accords, Terry Castle on desperately seeking Susan Sontag, Elliot Weinberger on what he heard about Iraq, and Seymour Hirsch on the killing of Osama bin Laden, and so forth. And sure enough, our first round of surgical incisions was rewarded with a respectable hit rate. The highlights included uh, a check Made out to Isaiah Berlin, returned because Berlin wrote, I cannot in conscience accept it. All I did was to defend myself against a somewhat peculiar peace. Uh, Also, Karl Miller's prophetic commissioning note to Tony Blair, asking the then front bench spokesman on trade and industry whether he might have time to write a discussion of the state and future direction of the Labour Party. Uh, A letter from Mary Beard, introducing herself in precisely the terms that would ultimately come to define her career. I teach classics, but I suppose I prefer writing about women's issues, politics, not aggressively technical sociology. Um, Poems sent in on spec, inspired by Poor Lady Di, including one superimposed on a photocopy of her face, and another entitled There You Come as Wafting Fragrance. Moving on. An email about Thomas Cromwell that Hilary Mantell sent the editors in 2006, three years before Wolf Hall was published. They were also determined on incest, she writes, or quasi-incest, like people enthralled by their own nightmares. But even though these emerged from the most obvious avenues of research, what was most conspicuous about these first discoveries was their unexpectedness. They weren't quite at the center of the notable moments. Rather, they came from the peripheries and irregular angles before or after or around the main event, by which I mean an iconic manuscript or a long letter from a Nobel Prize winner, the sort of thing I expected to be most thrilled to find. In some cases, this was because the main event turned out to be missing. It later transpired that several important items had been swiped by, let's call them, enterprising editors. Within weeks of returning to London, I'd tracked down Sachs' manuscript for The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, cross-hatched with a thousand transformative marks by Mary Kay, like an intelligence document redacted by an avant-garde CIA. Also, the notebook containing the first draft of Carl Miller's introductory note for the first ever issue... Uh, Bob Silvers of the NYRB's letter explaining why he had to break up with us. Uh, Abusive faxes from Harold Pinter. Um, The LRB rejected his eye-wateringly offensive poem about the Gulf War, provoking the following response. The paper shares my views, does it? I'd keep that to myself if I were you, chum. Manuscripts by Alan Bennett and much more. I'm pleased to say that some of these treasures have now been reinserted into the collection here. With these two, however, I found that the best way into them, the pressure point which made the fact of these extraordinary documents, how special they are, suddenly register in a flash of recognition, often wasn't located in their literary or historical heart. It was hidden in the margins instead. Take the Sachs manuscript, a spectacular record of the productive tussle between writers and editor that was the basis of his success. Undoubtedly, and yet I felt myself to be brought closer to this remarkable and most impossible of men by a fragment of the correspondence that came with it, dismissed as padding by the editor who found the papers in a drawer. Found. A short letter about contributor copies, which is signed three times in fading red, black, and green ink, with an explanatory note in red. All my pens suddenly ran out. Or. Carl's first draft, in one corner of which I found a good line that didn't make it into the published version. Meanwhile, it is a pleasure to be able to say that this is the first journal I have worked on, of which no one is in a position to say that it is not nearly as good as it used to be, which seems to say so much more about a figure described by John Lanchester, the novelist who began his career at the LRB, as the funniest person I have ever known by a distance. Both the joke itself and the fact that the other side of Carl, the Take No Prisoners editor, decided that it probably wasn't quite witty enough. Or Alan Bennett, whose annual diary is probably our most famous feature, and also the only LRB diary of the year that is broken up in the traditional manner into dated entries. And what should I find in a shoebox of postcards addressed to Carl and Mary Kay? A diary without dates, Bennett writes, is like a corset without stays. I don't want to do one. I began to wonder if this revelation could be the basis of a new kind of self-deprecatingly self-congratulatory book, The Holy Grail, and planned a second trip to Austin that would test the notion further. I asked my colleagues for suggestions of where to look to find more of this sort of thing. Admittedly, a difficult brief, the best and worst thing about this idea being that it really depends on one of the great truisms of the physical archive experience. You don't know what it is you are looking for until you find it. Although a couple of them got it and gave me brilliant leads. For example, John Lanchester unlocked the problem of how to represent the miraculous but visually unspectacular, except in the case of Sachs, back and forth between writer and editors, as all that fat from the piece is gradually whittled away on the page. With a brilliantly off-kilter case study, here's how he ended up describing it in the book. People don't know just how, how much hand-to-hand combat was involved in keeping typos and similar mistakes out of print in the days when everything was typeset by hand. Just occasionally, though, the accidents would work out well. In one of Hugo Williams' poems about Sonny Jim, he wrote that Jim rewinds his alarm clock for another working day. A typesetter, in those days the process was done out of house, set that as reminds. Reminds. We sent the proof to Williams and corrected the mistake on our galleys, but then when the proof came back, Williams had gone with Reminds and changed the rest of the line. (laughs) Feeling a bit sheepish, I rang him up to apologise and explain that we would change it back, but he just laughed, said he realised what had happened, but thought the idea of Jim reminding his alarm clock of work was so much in character that he wanted to keep it. I found Williams' proof in the archive. So there you have Reminds, and he's just crossed out the four at the beginning of the other line to make it make grammatical sense. And it seemed to say more about this strange, misunderstood process than any number of pages of Perry Anderson's prose being very gently tweaked. Interestingly, when it came to finding the best illustration of the fact-checking process, it turned out, in stark contrast with this less is more approach, that more was very much more, a dramatic page showing Seymour M. Hirsch being challenged by several different hands on every one of his counterfactuals. We ended up giving John and Hugo the subheading, Happy Accidents. The next spread in the book is titled, Unhappy Accidents, and featured a page from an issue containing a Patricia Beer poem and a letter from Beer complaining about its mutilation. You have left out the last line. In the accompanying caption, Andrew Hagan writes, she told me that seeing it on the page was one of the two things, the two worst things that ever happened to her, the other being the burning down of her thatched cottage in Devon. In my second week at the HRC, however, it became clear that a downside of my updated plan was that in a collection in which the things one finds around or underneath or in between the obvious targets turn out to tell the best stories, there's potentially something unmissable in every folder. And my increasingly random incursions bore occasional fruit, the apparently frivolous transfiguring into the deeply meaningful in front of my eyes. Enigmas were unraveled in the unlikeliest places, whole personalities, for example. Mary Kay Wilmers acknowledged that it was rather like me not to beat about the bush in the caption that eventually accompanied a letter exchange with Matthew Evans of Faber in which she asks if the publisher would be willing to commit to some advertising spend. Evans deftly turns the question around by asking how much and Mary Kay's response is just seven words long. Dear Matthew, £2,000. Yours, Mary Kay. (laughs) Meanwhile, the character of a a favourite son until he wasn't anymore like Christopher Hitchens, who wrote 60 pieces for the LRB between 1983 and 2002, is conveyed better by the closing paragraph of a covering fax, which begins, hi, sweetie, than all the rest of his correspondence that I read, anyway, combined. I can tell you one thing, though. I don't do it for the money. And if I did, well, let's not. Are you sure you aren't being too possessive? Are you sure I deserve it? I'll be sorry I asked that. If anybody notices my stuff at all, I'm sure they think I belong to you. I do, at any rate. Think so, that is. Fraternally, Hitch. Hitch also left a rich trail of resonant residue in between his letters, however. here some legal advice concerning a piece of his about the media mogul Conrad Black. All Mr. Black would have to do, if he was to sue, would be to show that Christopher Hitchens had an ulterior motive for his attack. (coughs) It is transparently obvious that Mr. Hitchens does have such a motive. There, a rare addition in. Longhand, Uh, no. We'll come to that later. There, a rare addition in longhand to a typescript, they usually arrived as perfect first drafts, rarely requiring more than a comma to be added here and there about two of his favorite things. Like money, booze and fags are happiness. Longhand from here. And people can't be expected to pursue happiness in moderation. He wasn't the only contributor who occasionally added a great line in longhand to a typescript or proof. To her third piece for the LRB about Colette, Angela Carter added an unforgettable truism. Only love can make you proud to be an also-ran. Clive James filed whole poems, sometimes thousands of words long, in longhand, a revelation I didn't read in any of the obituaries. Here's a particularly moving example we shared on Instagram when he died, a subject I will return to later. The best is yet to be simply because it hasn't happened yet, and what's to come we can Never forget, it stays sweet till we get used to it, at least, the only wonder that has never ceased. And that's a fact as certain as my name's, this line I'll have to pad a bit, Clive James." (laughs) Afterthoughts turned out to be another compelling cluster, mainly writers referring to what would become a famous piece in passing, sometimes in a PS at the end of a long exchange, about an ostensibly more important subject. Occurred to me to ask if you might be interested in a short personal piece about Sontag, Terry Castle wrote in 2005. I had a 10-year on-again, off-again friendship with her, rather like the relationship between Dame Edna Everidge and her little sidekick Madge. I don't need to explain who was Madge. In many ways, SS lived up to her initials. And (laughs) earlier that month, what a month, from Elliot Weinberger, in the meantime, for the hell of it, I've sent a mini-epic on the Iraq war that I happened to finish today. The introduction to another anniversary anthology published last year, Faber and Faber, the Untold Story, celebrating our Bloomsbury neighbours' 90th anniversary, does a decent job of explaining this temporal revelation of the archive, which accounts for so much of the eloquent force of these fragments. As much as possible, I have told the story of Faber through original documents. It is not just that the people writing them could turn a phrase, it is also that they could not know how their story was going to turn out. Their excitement, hopes, fears, and frustration vibrate through these pages, giving the book a sense of immediacy that hindsight-laden commentary cannot, hindsight-laden commentary. Maybe it shouldn't have been so surprising to me that marginal, irreverent, forgotten about details were proving to be a particularly expressive way of relating the history of the LRB, probably because of its overall relentlessness. That is to say, our pages of uninterrupted text, which subscribers have been complaining about since 1979, This is terrible, one C. Maynard wrote in 1979. Every time I open the pages of the London Review, my eyes swim and I feel distinctly down at the mouth. (laughs) Couldn't you make the slightest concession to what the human eye can and cannot do with endless columns of text? A recent email repeated this sentiment more or less word for word. Not to mention 10, 20, 30, 60,000 word pieces. The LRB has always taken its peripheries, the breadcrumbs that reel the reader in, quite seriously. Carl was a master of the rubric, our word for the line above the masthead on the cover, Gray's Elegy and Win Godley's, Shakespeare Nods, Thatcher Staggers, Troubles, Colon, Heaney's, Wittgenstein's, Palestines, and best of all, Connor Cruz, O Zion. These endure even though our covers look nothing like they used to. What have we done on the issue published the week after the referendum being the best example? And a recent review of Seamus Heaney's translation of book six of the Aeneid, was trailed on the cover in a very Carlish way as, you guessed it, the heniid. Mary Kay's editorship has seen this energy seep into the paper's pages too. Article titles have become more and more outrageous. My own all-time favorite, How to See Inside a French Milkman. And the <laughs> subscribers in the room will know what I'm talking about when I refer to Michael Wood's contributor note. Mary Kay takes this stuff very seriously indeed. I'm sure correctly believing that these little jokes reward and perpetuate the loyalty of subscribers almost as much as the quality of the writing does. The day the last issue, which should have reached Texas by now, went to press, we debated whether the first piece could be the latest installment of Catherine Rundell's increasingly celebrated occasional column about animals, in this case, hermit crabs. It came down to the question of whether it was too cute or the right amount of cute. Consensus eventually fell down on the right, on the side of the right amount. Mary Kay, in the same issue, also took great pleasure in publishing two pieces by naval historians with similar, with similar surnames, one after the other. And at one point, this impertinent spirit bled all the way through to the back pages, causing a seed to germinate into a phenomenon that, for a time, was in danger of overshadowing the rest of the magazine. I refer, I refer of course, to the LRB's personal ads eventually collected in two anthologies. They call me Naughty Lola and, sexually, I'm more of a Switzerland. (laughs) I'm sure that all magazines overthink this side of things and credit themselves in a similar way by insisting that the editors' jokes, rather than the writers', are where the publication's wit truly resides. But the extent to which this is a quality much commented on by our readers (coughs) means it could be argued that I should have been forewarned. No doubt, too, that in this room full of esteemed historians, scholars, and researchers, these revelations of the archive aren't at all surprising to you. They're your bread and butter, the essence of your craft, and the basis of many of the most high-profile archival finds of recent times, such as the discovery last year that one of the first folios at the Folger Shakespeare Library contains Milton's annotations in the margins. But I'm not a historian. I'm a journalist and a publisher, and based on the evidence of the various birthday volumes published in 2019, the news hasn't reached my colleagues, which is to say that they all, in my view, missed a the trick. Last year, anniversary publications had a moment. It was hard to keep track of all the cultural organisations celebrating big birthdays, which maybe made me wonder if there's something about the last year of a decade that inspires people to finally get round to founding their passion project. The Washington Post's Christian Carroll wrote a whole book about 1979 in particular and the birth of the 21st century. And many of them were moved, like us, to publish self-congratulatory epistolary tomes. Faber and Faber, the untold story, which I've already quoted, tried to pack as much of the publisher's history as possible into its 400-odd pages and can't really be blamed for doing so, with anecdotes to draw on like the time Lord of the Flies was rescued from the slush pile, a lot of good stuff to get through. But for me, the book's great revelation is the way T.S. Eliot's personality emerges from his correspondence, which skips from work on some of the 20th century's greatest poetry to his admirably energetic engagement with HR matters at Faber to letters like this uh, about cats. And we all know how that story ends. Well, that's even more grotesque than I expected it to be. But that's the only image of an actual letter reproduced in the book. Let's go back. Uh, Everything else is transcribed by the author, Toby Faber, with the following caveats outlined in his introduction. Readability trumps academic respectability. I have expanded abbreviation and corrected spellings where these seem to me to distract the reader, but left some in when they amuse me or tell us something. I have occasionally corrected some of the more egregious examples of poor punctuation, but have preserved the stray commas for which William Golding was famous. My aim throughout has been to cut out the boring bits. This approach has its disadvantages, of course. I'm particularly sad not to be able to show the way relationships develop from dear Sir through dear Faber to dear Geoffrey, but that sort of thing is probably best left to the published correspondence. Based on my own experiences compiling a similar volume, I find the way this in- introduction acknowledges the charms of the original letters, even as it strips many of them out, to be wrong headed and slightly heartbreaking. Another volume published by a British literary publisher last year, 5050, Carcanet's Jubilee and Letters, uh, begins more promisingly with founder Michael Schmidt's introduction locating the essence of his house's history in the parenthesis, an abandoned poem by Anthony Rudolph, very much my sort of thing. Loping in old trousers from poem to crisis, he survives like the feather on his mantelpiece. But the opportunity for other ephemera to sing is quickly shut up by an odd concept, one correspondent per year, and swamped with footnotes. It seems excessive to annotate this playful fax, one begins depressingly. Again, just one letter is scanned. Uh, While all the rest are transcribed, a marvellous missive from W.S. Graham, in the middle of which the poet has scrawled a picture of a boat at sea, a delightfully accessible shortcut into this impenetrable body of work. But then a similar coup de correspondence is ruined by transcription. For example, I hope you will mention, open square brackets, half a dozen Chinese characters drawn here, that I'm influenced by Tibetan verse, the last year review. Joke. I also am having, you will see my calligraphy improves when I'm talking about money, difficulties with finance. The aforementioned Grand anthology suffers from the opposite problem, featuring no footnotes at all. Not a problem at the start, which sees the reproduction of a funny letter from Kingsley Amos, I'm afraid you are almost certain to be unable to afford me, followed by a terrific fairy tale by Angela Carter, and on the facing page, a letter redolent with the same eloquent mystery as her story. I can punctuate perfectly adequately when I want to, flanked with typos, a tantalising crossed-out line, an even more tantalising cancelled PS, But then the special issue loses its way, decoupling reproduced letters from context without explanation to the extent that I ended up cross-referencing the address on one with my own research in order to confirm that it really was from Doris Lessing, rather than the writers whose pieces it is wedged between. In her introduction, Grant as editor Sigrid Rousing writes, we hope you will revel in the shock of the text. I couldn't agree more, but utter confusion feels like the wrong kind of frisson, which is a pity because the shock of the text is precisely my point and exactly what these anthologies accidentally defused. They are fundamentally boring, worthy volumes which have no business being so. Doubtless, they would say the same about ours. But unlike ours, it's hard to imagine them enjoying a digital afterlife." Which brings me to my next and final section. And actually, mostly, a digital journalist and a digital publisher. And it's in terms of the digital, similarly ignorant of the shock of the archive that my journey, there it is, with London Review of Books and Incomplete History has, I hope, wider implications. Digitization of a large archive, of articles, paintings or whatever, and the subsequent curation and journalism that disseminates the results tends to be a pretty macro project, mainly concerned with minimising transcription errors in thousands of records and structuring keywords correctly, and smoothing out inconsistencies so that the fields through which items are then circulated display correctly in page templates and when shared across social media. It is, in other words, a numbers game completely lacking in whimsy. Within the agile website development methodology, errors and inconsistencies are fixed in great waves until they're all eradicated. Getting items into wider online circulation relies on similar principles, because of the bottomless maw of social media. It can only be satisfied with calendars and workflows that quickly and efficiently locate and post content relevant to the day's news agenda, or an anniversary or sporting event, ideally with a provocative image and pull quote, to capture as many clicks as possible. This was actually another part of my job until quite recently. But as I was switching from work on the book to stoking the LRB's Twitter and Facebook feeds, it suddenly occurred to me that everything revelatory in the former, every flash and every shock was a detail or a layer or a temporal edge that would be, had been, actively whitewashed by the process of digitization. And as the focus of our anniversary year moved on from an incomplete history to a new website containing, but not adequately unleashing, the complete publishing history of the paper, I began to wonder if the latter might be saved by the energy we'd tried to bottle in the book. That the key to unlocking the problem of information overload that anybody who has worked on a big digital project in the cultural sector and beyond will recognize might be the recovery of peripheral textures, the ghosts forgotten by the machine. This idea makes particular sense with literary archives because of the challenge I acknowledged in my editorial note at the start of our book. We apologize for having somehow managed to create an illustrated history in which every other image is, in fact, yet another chunk of text. The point being that these chunks of text are, in fact, different. One of the reasons content cuts through in digital culture is, for better or worse, the force of its visuality. You only need to look at the contortions wordy magazines, including the LRB, put themselves through on Instagram to make a pull quote of copy beautiful or punchy enough to complete with images and video to see how difficult the visual turn makes life for literature on the internet. But a crossed out typescript, or a scribbled note in a margin, or a perfect line added in longhand, or an illustrative doodle, or indeed a post-it note recording something outrageous your editor said has rare viral potential. On Instagram, Hitchens's handwritten edition, freighted with the knowledge that it was booze and fags that eventually killed him, registers with the force of, I don't know, for sale baby shoes never worn. And from off this platform, millennials dive into our digital archive cracking the shell that had, up to them, kept them out. I'm reassured that this isn't a completely crackpot theory by an essay by the German philosopher Walter Benjamin, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which, I'm not the first to note, anticipated some of the crises of the internet with startling exactitude in 1935. The translation here is by Harry Zone. Technical reproduction can put the copy of the original into situations that would be out of reach for the original itself. Above all, it enables the original to meet the beholder halfway. The situations into which the product of mechanical reproduction can be brought may not touch the actual work of art, yet the quality of the presence is always depreciated. The authenticity of a thing is the essence of all that is transmissible from its beginning, ranging from its substantive duration to its testimony to the history which it has experienced. Since the historical testimony rests on the authenticity, the former too is jeopardized by reproduction when substantive duration ceases to matter. And what is really jeopardized when the historical testimony is affected is the authority of the object. One might subsume the eliminated element in the term aura and go on to say, that which withers in the age of mechanical reproduction is the aura of the work of art. This is a symptomatic process whose significant points beyond the realm of art One might generalize by saying the technique of reproduction detaches the reproduced object from the domain of tradition. By making many reproductions, it substitutes a plurality of copies for a unique existence. Perhaps the next revolution in digital publishing will, in the manner of, say, the Google Art Project's use of super high resolution photography of paintings to perhaps undo some of the damage that Benjamin describes, be based on recovery of some of the aura of the papers we find in archives like the Harry Ransom Center, as well as shoeboxes and drawers. A recovery of the text as object, as artwork, as historical testimony, as unique existence. Thanks very much.